one at a time with this idea in mind that Jesus, God's one and only son, was sent to us so that we could be given the gift of a new life for each and every one of us. And the way that uh, actually Jesus goes on to describe the heart of God in this, uh, as he tells this parable, we looked at the beginning of the series, a story where a shepherd leaves 99 perfectly good sheep to go in search of the one wandering sheep. Like that is who our God is. That's what he's about and we believe is his church. That's what we're to be about. And so that's what this series, this idea of one at a time, that a God who came for us, who sent his one and only son that we would one at a time, represent that reality in others' lives. And so today as we look uh, at, at another character uh, in uh, scripture here, Luke chapter five, uh, verse 27 through 32, we're gonna see an example of how it is that Jesus demonstrates what we're supposed to be in the lives of others. Um, and a guy by the name of Levi. So a little bit of context here before we jump into the verse and the passage itself is that in Luke chapter five, you actually have the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And so as he's starting his ministry, he's starting by calling his first disciples. And so at the beginning of chapter five, he calls his first disciple uh, Simon Peter, who's a fisherman. And to him he says, hey, you're gonna now actually fish for people. You're gonna fish for the hearts and the lives and the souls of men and women. And then he, a little later, he calls this guy by the name of Levi. Now, Levi, he was a tax collector. And if you've been around church at all, you've heard about tax collectors. Something about them is not good. And it's not like we love tax collectors now. But it was like especially not, especially not good back in the time of Jesus. Because really, a tax collector, a better translation of what that career would be, would be essentially a professional extortionist. A, a traitor, uh, he would have been someone who would have been despised. And, and the reason he was able to uh, take advantage of people uh, and, and take things from them was because as a tax collector, he would have been a Jewish man uh, and he would have been hired by the Roman government, the oppressing, occupying uh, army to be able to take taxes from his own people but then beyond that, add to it whatever he wants for his own gain to be able to take advantage of his own people as a traitor because he had the backing, the power of the entire Roman army behind him. And so you could wonder what that tension like could have been. I mean, sure, he's got all the resources he could want, uh, but with his own family, his own people, he's completely ostracized. And so this tension is what we walk into this story knowing that a tax collector would have been completely on the outside of every one of his own people. And so with this idea in mind, we step into this story as Jesus steps into his. It says in Luke chapter five, verse 27, that Jesus, he, he went out and he saw Levi. He saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth, to which Jesus said to him, follow me. And so to Levi's surprise and everybody else's surprise around him, uh, Jesus says, follow me. And so Levi, he gets up and he leaves everything to follow Jesus. Now, this story of Levi, at some level, is anyone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, every one of us who have done that at this point, is this is part of our story. Because at some level, uh, despite our own kind of story, our past, our darkness, that whatever our story is that Jesus has said to us, not because of anything you've done or anything you haven't done, but because of what I've done and who I am, he says, you can follow me. And naturally, if we've experienced this, if we've experienced uh, being followers of Jesus and, and, the, and the joy and the difference that's made in our life, there's a sense of like, we wanna be able to share that with other people. Like we wanna be able to have, uh, you could say, the opportunity to share the hope and the new life we have 
with others that they might experience that new life. And that's what this idea of one at a time has been all about. Like, how do we do that? Just one person at a time. And so we started this series just saying, hey, everybody can get in this game. Everybody can participate because everybody can handle one prayer at a time. That each day we said to put that graphic uh, on our phones as a reminder to just say, okay, God, today, who is my one at a time? And then after that, Pastor Adam, uh, talking about the story of the Good Samaritan, uh, said this reality that as we wanna be a good neighbor to one at a time, that we often, as this effort to try to be a neighbor to everyone, sometimes we end up neighboring no one. And so it's this reminder that everyone can be a neighbor to someone. And so again, that one at a time, God, who's my one at a time today? And then last week, Pastor BJ, he took us to Jesus' Great Commission. Uh, it's called the Great Commission because it's his great last words uh, before he ascends into heaven and sends his Holy Spirit to be among us. And this Great Commission, Jesus' last words, were simply this, for us to quote, therefore, and go and make disciples, to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, to teach them everything that he's commanded us. And this promise, he says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so this understanding that if these were Jesus' last words, well then, as his followers, they should be our first priority, to be able to share what we have with others. And again, if you've been around the church thing for a while, you know this. You know that uh, you're supposed to, and, and Jesus tells us to share him with others. Uh, but I think there's another layer that just says, okay, but do we do this? Like, do we feel like we do this effectively? Do we feel good about how we're sharing Jesus in our lives? There, there's this old preacher joke that says that if you wanna make people feel guilty, preach about prayer and evangelism because nobody feels like they're doing either enough, right? It's like, always, oh, I can always pray more. I could always share Jesus more in my life. We always feel just, I don't know, maybe a little guilty, like we, we could be doing more to share the good news with others in our lives. And, and it got me to thinking, like, is that what God wants for us? Like, does he want us walking around feeling guilty for not doing enough in the area of sharing him? Does he, convicted and committed, yes, but like, feeling bad all the time because we're not talking about Jesus more. And, and it's kind of like this paradox because, you know, when it comes to other things in our life, you know, if you catch a, a great movie or you eat at a, uh, like an awesome restaurant, like, sure, you're gonna share that. Like, you gotta see this movie or you've gotta go to this restaurant. But why is it, like, when it comes to this thing that many of us would make the case that this is the most important thing in our lives, God in our life, like, why does it come when this most important thing feels like sometimes the hardest thing for us to actually share with another, uh, even with one person at a time? Well, I wanna give us some language to what I think a lot of us have maybe felt in this reality, maybe have even said and articulated, and just kinda get us all working from the same reality that I think exists for us when it comes to, you could say hurdles maybe that it feels like we have to hop over to be able to talk to people about Jesus, or maybe just some resistance that we feel that we can't quite put a finger on why it is this most important thing, seems like the hardest thing to talk about. Um, I would paint it this way, that there are, I would argue, kind of umbrella realities, two what we could call sociological hurdles that we have to hop over, as well as with that two psychological hurdles. Uh, and so sociological, sociology is simply the study of people in a particular place in a particular time. And so I would say that our first sociological hurdle when it comes to representing Jesus in our culture is just simply, you could say, the reputation of the church in our current culture. That 
when it comes to the problems and the issues of the world, that those who are outside of the church, they really don't view the church as part of the solution. In fact, in, in many cases, and more secular in nature, they probably see the church as more part of the problem, actually, than part of the solution. And we see how this happens. You know, there's some difference, completely different worldviews on when it comes to certain cultural issues or the uniqueness of Christ, morality, sexuality, uh, and at times you could say the unhealthy intersection of politics and religion. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a reason that there's an unspoken rule at the Thanksgiving dinner table that we don't talk about religion or politics. Um, it's because this is in there. We, we feel it. We know it's there. Or then getting beyond just kind of the global church in our culture, there's also just individual Christians' reputations that we have to get past. I mean, we nor those outside of the church have to look real far to find uh, another fallen Christian leader who had some type of inappropriate relationship with money or power or another person. Or think about how like individual Christians are portrayed in media. Um, if, if you didn't grow up growing to church like me, you might have watched The Simpsons growing up. Because um, if you grew up in church, you weren't allowed to watch The Simpsons. But if you didn't grow up in church, you might have seen The Simpsons, and you might remember the character Ned Flanders. <laughs> Nobody grows up and says, I want to be Ned Flanders when I grow up. Like, that's not the example uh, that we want, and it's, again, right, wrong, or in between, it is a perception that's in media that represents, again, from the outside looking in, a, a, a reality in our culture. Again, perception, perhaps, reality. Maybe in a more recent example, if you're familiar with the TV show, uh, The Office, there is a, a character uh, whose who's name is Angela, and she's like the, the typical, like, you know, hypocritical, judgmental, typecast Christian character in the show. Uh, I remember one episode where uh, Jim is uh, asking people that if they were on a deserted island, which three books they would take. And so uh, Jim asks Angela, uh, and she replies, the Bible. Uh, very curt, quick answer. Uh, to which Stanley pipes in, he's like, well, that's one book, you, you've got two more. And so Angela, rolling her eyes, the purpose-driven life. <laughs> and Jim says, nice, you've, you've got one more. To which Angela responds, no. <laughs> and it's just, like, again, if you don't know the character, I mean, you can imagine just this, like, just uptight, curt response. And then if you know her character throughout the story, very hypocritical to the things that she claims and the way that she's living her life. But again, just that stereotypical, judgmental, hypocritical, not living out what she claims to say and believe. And so coupled with these, you almost could say these sociological challenges that we feel like we're up against when we want to share our faith with somebody, that kind of gets into our minds as, uh, you could say, some psychological hurdles that we need to get past. And that the first one we got to get past is like, well, we don't want to be, you could say, that guy or that gal uh, at, at the office. We don't want to be the Angela at the office. We don't want to be the Ned Flanders because we know that stereotype. And we know maybe if we open our mouth about Jesus, it might actually be a hindrance uh, to our witness that all of a sudden I'm gonna be kind of ostracized from even having the opportunity to talk about Jesus if I go about it maybe in the wrong way. And then if by some small miracle we get past all of these things and we are afforded that opportunity to talk to somebody about our faith in Jesus and the hope that we have and we see that opportunity before us, our next biggest fear is getting past the fact that we don't wanna be, we could say, clueless guy 
Like, like I don't want to be clueless in what I'm supposed to say and how I'm supposed to respond and what if they ask questions that I don't have the answers to. And so we have all of these hurdles that I think, again, we've probably felt or maybe even articulated ourselves in one way or another. And so how do we hop over these? How do we overcome this resistance, knowing again, like Jesus told us to do this, we want to do this, but we find it difficult sometimes because of these tensions, you could say. Well, I'm encouraged that the scriptures speak to this directly. Uh, we don't have to get creative, we don't have to come up with something. I mean, the Bible shoots us straight and gives us very specific understanding. One of our anchoring passages, both around here and throughout this series, uh, is in the book of Colossians, where the Apostle Paul is writing to this church at Colossae as to kind of overcome some hurdles that they had in their cultural day when it comes to those who are kind of outside of the faith. He, he simply said it this way. First of all, be wise. You know, be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders or those who are outside of the faith, outside of the church. And when you have an opportunity, well, do whatever it is to be wise and make the most of that opportunity. How can you do that? Well, you can let your conversation always be full of grace. Let it be seasoned with salt. You know, Jesus had to be salt and light so that you may know how to answer or you may know how to respond to everyone given the uniqueness of that opportunity in that situation. You know, we boil all of this passage down to two words. We say around here that we want to invest and invite. We want to invest and invite. That first we want to make sure that we invest in others and this opportunity to share our faith. Um, now, a little sidebar here. Uh, during that time, uh, the ancient Greeks, they had this understanding that, again, this would have been the cultural context of Jesus, that when it comes to communicating something, like in our case, communicating faith in Jesus Christ, that when it comes to what we say, the ancient Greeks, they understood that what we say is actually only one of three key communication components. Uh, they would have split it up this way. They would say that the, the logos is what I say, but beyond that, there's also the pathos, uh, which is the way that I make you feel. And beyond that, there's also this ethos of how I actually live my life. And I think when it comes to, you know, the Great Commission and telling others about Jesus and being a witness and all that stuff, I think we often think it's just this. It's just as long as I say the right thing and say the, the, you know, the right response at just the right time, but then I've done what I'm supposed to do. I think we all have experienced uh, situations where we were in front of someone who, you know, it seems like they're saying all the right things. I like what they have to say, but there's something about the way that I feel when I'm around them. It's something about, it, does, it just feels off, we might say. Or beyond that, maybe you do know this person. And you say, I, I hear what you're saying. Uh, I, you're saying some good things, but I, I know how you, I, like, like the things that I do know about you just aren't that good. They just don't seem to, to line up. And so this is important because we have to recognize that our witness to somebody is not just getting the right words in, but it also is how do we make them feel by our presence and who we are, by the way that we also live our life. It's how do we be wise in the way that we act toward those who are outside the faith in all these areas of our life. And so what that means is beyond just what we have to say, it means that the way that we make people feel and the way that we live when it comes to our personal lives, our interactions, our, our business life, uh, how we treat others, all these things 
matter in how we are making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the role that God have, would have us in that. You know, Jesus said kind of to these two points, the way we live and the way that we do our whole life, he said, remember, you're the salt of the earth in that you are the light of the world. So let your light shine before others so that when they see the way that you live, they'll see your good deeds. But in turn, knowing that you're a follower of Jesus, they will glorify your Father in heaven. And it's this that we actually see Levi taking up. We see Levi stepping into this. Remember Levi, he's this despised tax collector. Uh, but what does he do right after he starts to become a follower of Jesus? Verse 29, look with me in that passage again. It says right after that, it says Levi, he held this great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. And so we see Levi right out of the gate. He's investing in the relationships with his fellow tax collectors by having them and Jesus over to his house. That if we had to sum this verse up in one word, we see him demonstrating uh, the biblical representation of what we would call hospitality. He is demonstrating hospitality. Like this is such the through line through this story and actually throughout so much of what we read in the Gospels, uh, the, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as well as the letters of the church. And what, it's like it's all over it. In fact, um, there was this riddle I grew up with and you, it's been around long enough, uh, you probably know it, but uh, we'll see if you can get it here today if you're sharp enough. Okay, so the riddle is this. What is black and white and red all over. It is that bad of an old joke, got it, okay. Yeah, everybody knows it. Okay, in case you missed it, what's black and white and red all over, a newspaper. You've got black font text on white paper and it's R-E-A-D, red, all over. I would say that is the truth about hospitality in the New Testament, that you, it is hiding in plain sight, that as you like look, I said scroll, because maybe you do, as you scroll or flip through your Bible, you are gonna read R-E-A-D, hospitality, over all of it. Here we have Levi with a great banquet. Uh, you know, in other settings, it's over um, you know, conversations in homes and meals and around water wells and walking along the road. Hospitality is everywhere. And so for Levi, it's a great banquet. But for us, you know, maybe it's just, I don't know, a simple cookout with some burgers and dogs for the people who live on our street tomorrow, Labor Day. Maybe it's uh, coffee or lunch with uh, a friend or pizza and a game on the TV. In fact, when it comes to kind of lunches and coffees, like that's why our Mosaic Cafe ministry exists. Like I know you guys got something tasty to drink today, but that's kind of a byproduct. The, the reason that place exists is mostly because of what happens on Monday through Friday. It's an opportunity to make sure that the house of God is always this outpost of hospitality to be able to host others to get that first step maybe in the door that will hopefully, we pray, bring them one day into this space or the East Auditorium uh, into a saving relationship with Jesus. And we have seen that happen. We see that happen all the time, people that being a step kind of in their journey as well. And so when it comes to all of this, this idea of this holistic understanding of representing Jesus, not in just what we say, but how we make others feel and what we do, uh, being salt and light and hospitality. Um, I love this quote. Uh, maybe you've heard it before. Uh, it's this understanding. It says, that what we wanna do with our lives, we wanna make sure we preach the gospel at all times, but if necessary, use words. Preach the gospel at all times with the way that we live and make people feel, and if necessary, use words. 
and that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, um, though there's some debate as to whether or not he actually ever said it. But, um, I mean, we get the idea, right? We get that we are supposed to be salt and light in the way that we live as we invest in others. Uh, but even as I share this quote, and it's a quote I love, I, if I'm honest, I kind of have, I guess you could say, kind of a love-hate relationship with this. And here's why. Because while I love how it pushes back on the idea that, hey, if as long as we say the right things, we're good, at the expense of how we live and make people feel, there is this reality that words actually are necessary. And so a better quote, and I don't feel bad changing it because we don't think St. Francis actually said it, so I think I'm in the clear, is preach the gospel at all times, but then when appropriate, use words. That words are, at some point, necessary. Again, this is what the scriptures remind us in, in Romans, this idea. Romans 10, 14 says, how then can they call on the one that they have believed in, or excuse me, how can they call on the one that they have not yet believed in, and how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And so, how can they hear without someone preaching to them, or uh, the New Living Translation says, without someone telling them. And so that's why it is that we invest with our lives, but it's also that we invite with our words. That we invite with our words. And so you might say, okay, does that mean just invite them to church? Well, it could be part of it, but it's not all of it. Like, even if you bring someone with you, I assume you're showing hospitality to the way in which you've brought them, and then afterwards, either a lunch following the service or maybe a coffee throughout the week, you're catching up, and you're saying, okay, what did you hear? What did you learn? What did you experience? Um, I love the way that Pastor BJ actually shared the idea of the logos side, what we say uh, last week in his message. He just kind of simply, again, you could say it this way, that if... Um, you know, the golden rule, Jesus said, treat others the way that you wanna be treated. Uh, I think this translates here. It's like, you could say, evangelize others the way that you'd wanna be evangelized. And I don't know about you, but I haven't had too many people knock on my door uh, in the name of religion wanting to hear my perspective or my story uh, without first just wanting to blast into theirs. And so we start with this idea that we wanna hear their story. Like, where are they coming from? What's their journey up to this point in this life? And then from there, we have the opportunity then just naturally through conversational reciprocation and relational reciprocation, just natural way the world works. You have that invitation then to share your story and what God has done in it. And then you have that opportunity to share God's story with them. And Pastor BJ shared it in a beautiful way last week, the way that he does this in Club 305, and he says, if it's good enough for a second grader, it's good enough for me. And just a simple reality that God, who is perfect and gives us the gift of life, um, we rejected that. Us, we rejected that, and so that's called sin, and that leads to death. But Jesus came, and he took our death and gave us the gift of life. He traded us straight up. But that's the gospel. And knowing that this reality is a part of our story, we then can invite them into God's story, that they can accept Jesus Christ as the forgiver and savior of their sin, of where they chose their own way, and choose a new way, that Jesus Christ will be the Lord and the leader of their life, both in this life and into all of eternity. And so, does all this happen in a like one single bound conversation? Sometimes, but not usually it would seem. It really comes back to Colossians. It's discerning through the Holy Spirit, who's, uh, we're gonna sing this later, that, who's at home in our chest, but then also rings out of us by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us and through us. We wanna just be wise 
in every opportunity. We wanna make the most of that conversation, that opportunity, that interaction, uh, so that we can know how to respond to everyone. You know, one of the most helpful ways that I've ever seen this passage described is in this illustration. Um, I'll, I'll describe it a little bit, that with this understanding of like the cross being the, the line of faith, where someone moves from uh, not being a follower of Jesus to saying, okay, I'm in, I want God's story in my life. And then you could say like the mission of our church, we say that for those who have put their faith in Jesus, that we wanna become more devoted followers of Jesus. We wanna continue to grow. Again, if you put numbers to it, you know, plus one, two, three, four, five. Like we wanna keep growing as devoted followers of Jesus after that decision. But I think sometimes we forget that there's also a journey before the cross, that not everyone's just sitting here, right here at like a negative one, waiting for you to have a conversation with them about how they can accept Jesus. Because in a lot of cases, and again, this kind of comes back to some of those sociological hurdles, we're, there's a lot of people in our life who, you know, maybe because of the Ned Flanders and the Angelas in their life, maybe they're like at a negative three. Or, or maybe, you know, we live, you know, 200 years post-enlightenment where, you know, kind of quick history reminder, like post-enlightenment is when faith and spirituality kind of went out the window and logic and reason trumped everything. And so maybe there's just them, some intellectual hurdles that people just can't get past when it comes to faith. And so maybe that they're at a negative five. Or I know stories, and they're horrific, of where people who were part of this, um, due to maybe the mistreatment or even the abuse of someone uh, in leadership and influence in a religious setting, maybe at a negative 10. You think they wanna hear what you have to say here if they're down here? And so we have to be wise. We have to be discerning. We have to have the Holy Spirit's supernatural ability to overcome these things so that when the opportunity presents itself, we can be wise in the way that we help someone maybe who's at a negative three, maybe take a step towards a negative two by the way that maybe in our workplace we're different than you know the Angelas that someone around us says, man, that gal or that guy, they're, they're, they're different. The way they, their integrity, the way that they're the same person in this business meeting and outside of it, it's like there's something different there and, and they know that you're a follower of Jesus, then you move them without them ever even saying it from a negative three to a negative two. Or maybe it's in the way that you show hospitality, a conversation over coffee, the way you listen to someone's story, that the best way to season that conversation with salt is to just listen and hear their story. You move them up. Or maybe it is the opportunity to be able to share your story, to be able to, you know, maybe they're right there. And again, you're discerning, okay, let's talk about Jesus here. You know, one of my favorite things to do uh, in this kind of conversation setting, um, if I don't know the person real well and it kind of comes up, normally my, I get a cheat. Like, they're like, what do you do for a living? I'm like, game over. Um, <laughs> and, and so that, that conversation sometimes comes up a little quicker. But one of, you, you guys know this if you've been around here. Like, I didn't, I, I always say I didn't grow up doing the whole church and God thing. And so I just like asking that question. I just simply ask, so tell me your story with the whole church and God thing. I'll tell you, that's, that's incredible how much that will open up them sharing their story with where they're at. Uh, and again, maybe giving you some opportunity with some wisdom to be able to share your story a little bit. Um, and so with this idea in mind, uh, you know, how are we helping people grow closer to Jesus, not just developing after they accept Jesus? When you, when you walked in here uh, this morning, you got a little chain link. Uh, I had a chain link. Andrew tried to warn me these things fall off really easily. You know what they are. Thank you. So mine must fell off. Okay, so here's the idea, and hopefully yours won't fall off like mine did, but you know, 
we promised at the beginning of this series, if you put that little background on your phone, we wouldn't make you keep it forever because we know it becomes visual white noise. And so this is our last day in this series before we move into the next thing. Um, but I wanna encourage you, kind of as we go from this one, that you would put this little link as a link in the chain on your keychain. If you wanna do it right now, go ahead and do that. Last service, people just start doing it so you guys can <laughs> go for it. Why, why wait, you know, why procrastinate something so easy? Uh, but here's the idea in mind, that when it comes to this journey, as we've kind of painted, like you might not always get to be, you could say the final link in the you know, decision to step over a line of faith for the next links of their, like you might not always get to be the final link in their evangelism story. But here's what I want this to be a reminder for you. Let's make sure that as we see this, as we look at this, as we're reminded by this, as we pray for people, that even if we're not the final link, may we make sure that we are not, you could say, the missing link. We don't wanna be the missing link in the way that we help someone feel, hear, or in our example in the way that we live. That whatever it means, we wanna make sure that we don't miss the opportunity to be wise in the way that we act towards someone who's outside of the faith as we live, as we show the hospitality of Jesus, and as we again, maybe have that opportunity to have those conversations. So with this, oh yeah, one other thing. I was looking at my notes for the first time in a long time. Uh, if, if you're online, uh, I think we can still mail this for the price of one stamp. So text the church, we'll get you one of these uh, dealios here, here uh, as well. So don't be the missing link. Uh, and again, as cute and as novel and creative, whatever this, this might be, again, this is, this is just biblical. I mean, this is what the scriptures say. This is what we see in Colossians. It's what we see in 1 Corinthians, uh, where this is another go-to passage for us in this on a regular basis, where it says, I, Paul, planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but get this, it's only God that's making it grow. So neither he who plants nor the one who waters, he says, is anything. We're nothing, like we're just there to do what God has because we know it's only God that grows people towards him, only God who makes things grow. And so that's a very liberating reality is that if we do our part, we trust God to do his part. I love the story in the Old Testament where the prophet Elijah, he's trying to show a bunch of people uh, to be wise in this setting that God is the one true God against all these false idols and all these things. And so Elijah, uh, he, he builds this altar and he puts a bull on it. And um, the, basically there's this challenge between him and these others about whose gods are gonna you know, send fire from heaven to burn up this uh, altar. So the other, the Baal worshipers, like they hoot and holler all day, nothing happens. But then it says that Elijah, he steps forward and he prays. And he says, answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. And it says that this happened next, that the fire of the Lord, it fell from heaven, it burned up the sacrifice, the wood and the stones, and burned up the soil, it even licked up the water in the trench. And it says that when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and they cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord is God. In other words, Elijah built the altar, but God brought the fire. Elijah built the altar, but only God can bring the fire. We can plant, we can water seed, we can build the, you know, the altar and all this, but we remember that it is God that brings the growth. It is God that brings the fire. 
And so really that's how our passage with Levi actually ends, with Jesus reminding all of us of this is how he works. And so wrapping up our passage, if you wanna look back again at Luke 5, last few verses there, uh, as in Levi, by the way, also known as Matthew, uh, Levi Matthew, Matthew is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the author of the gospel of the first book of the New Testament describes the life of Jesus. This is the same person. So you've got Matthew uh, who leaves everything to follow Jesus. He has hospitality for everyone around him by having this huge like Labor Day cookout deal. And he invites all of his tax collector friends, the negative threes, the negative sevens, the negative tens, but he also invites Jesus into his home so that they might experience him. And then this is what happens next. Verse 30 says, but the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the religious leaders who belonged to their sect, as all this was happening, it says that they complained to Jesus' disciples. They say, why do you guys, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? To which Jesus steps in and he answers them. He says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then interpreting his own illustration just says, hey, I have not come to call the righteous, you could put self-righteous there, but sinners to repentance. You know, some verses just don't even need like preached, like they just kind of preach themselves. And so really the question for us is, is this the kind of church that we're gonna be? Uh, when it comes down to the kind of church, we're we gonna be the, the Pharisee type, we're gonna be the religious type, we're gonna be the self-righteous type. You know, Romans 3 tells us that we've all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. The only difference between the religious leaders and the sinners is the sinners at least knew they were sinners. And so we're reminded that we are able, because he is with us, to go and live out this great commission. That we are able to go, as he said, to be fishers of men rather than, you could say, just keepers of the aquarium. Right? Like, we're, we're gonna go out, men, women, families, coworkers, neighbors, we're gonna be fishers of men and women, not just keepers of the aquarium and keeping it all clean. And so it just comes back to that first parable. Are we gonna be the kind of church who's willing to walk away from the comfort of the 99 at Jesus' invitation for the one wanderer? By his grace, by his wisdom, one at a time. So with this idea in mind, let's pray knowing that it's him that's gonna work through us for it. Heavenly Father, that's our prayer that as we face opportunities this week, that we would be wise in the way that we live, in the way that we make people feel, as well as our words. Full of grace, seasoned with salt. God, that we might plant and water and build whatever it is that you want us to build, all with the confidence of knowing that ultimately, it's only you that brings the growth, it is you that brings the fire, it is you that grows hearts towards you. And so whatever role that you have us, may it be one at a time that we would not be the missing link. In the name of Jesus, amen.